tonight, our scripture reading is just one verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. And it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Who are you? Like, really, deep down, who are you? I want you to think about that. That's the topic of the sermon. A few weeks ago, I was in a Manhattan office talking with a mentor. We were sitting 16 floors above the taxis and pedestrians crowding 6th Avenue. We were far away from the honking and the clamoring of the city, and we asked an important question. Our mentor asked this group of students to do something. He said, I want you to make a list of who you are, of the attributes that make up who you are. How do you see yourself? Not necessarily how do other people see you, but who do you believe that you are? When everyone else goes home, when no one is watching, no excuses, no filters, who are you? And that's a challenging question, or at least it was for me. I'll be honest, one of, the, one of the things I see when I think of who I am is like unathletic or unhealthy. For example, I am completely unfamiliar with the game that is playing on television tonight. <laughs> I'm not a sport guy. But beyond that, I'm not really that considerate of my food intake. In fact, my wife and I have been trying to get healthier lately, trying to make a few changes, nothing crazy, uh, but we're trying to live a more healthy lifestyle. And you know, I want to be healthy. I do. I want to exercise. I want to do those things. I want to. (laughs) But trying hard to be healthier has helped me see something about myself. I do not do those things. And in many, many other ways, when I looked at this list comprising the answer to the question, who am I, there was a definite sense that I am not yet who I wish I was or who I want to be. So in tonight's sermon, I will be discussing identity. Who am I? Who are you at the core? What's the truest thing, the deepest thing about you? This is a question that is asked in Romans chapter 7, the, the chapter that precedes our chapter for this sermon series. So it's a question asked in Romans chapter 7 and answered in Romans chapter 8. So I'll read Paul, the author of Romans' question, which is much like our own, who am I? Paul says, For I, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. So he's saying, like, I want to do this, but I don't do it, and what I don't want to do, those are the things I do. 
Paul is clearly on the struggle bus in chapter 7. And many of us, if we're honest, we're right there with him. We know what is right. We know what the right thing to do is. But why can't we do that thing? We all have an image of who we wish we were, and we're not there. And our first instinct is to fight, to build, to create the identity we want for ourselves. So in the middle of this really loud sound in the background, the heater is in the back corner, just past the cross. Turn it counterclockwise. Oh, it's locked. All right, it's just going to be hot. So stop for a second before we really jump into the fullness of the sermon and think, who am I? I want you to build a mental list of some things that you are. Because the cool thing about this exercise is after that we, we created a second list and it's who does God say we are. And those two lists were very different. So I want you to just think for a little while. I'm going to give you a minute of quiet, eyes closed. And I want you to think, who am I? And who do I wish I was? God, help us to see who you've created us to be. Help us realize our true identity tonight so that we'll stop hanging our identity on the good things or the bad things that we do. Uh, God, help us to have a secure identity that's rooted in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this book, Paul is writing a letter to early Christians. He's speaking to them about his new identity in Jesus and their new identity in Jesus. Though his heart and actions are at war as described in chapter 7, his identity is firmly rooted. The entire story here in Romans 8 is predicated on the fact that the readers had begun to follow Jesus. They now belong to him. This is the biggest thing I want you to see tonight, that your identity is no longer one you must strive to create, but it is something beautiful that you have already received. Now your identity is not primarily about building something, but about belonging to someone. The sense of belonging and identity is something we all long for. Tonight, if you are in Jesus, I want you to know who you are. And the first thing this passage shows us, Romans 8.15, is that you are free. You are free. Look back with me at the verse. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the author of this letter wants us to know something about our identity. We are free. In Jesus, you are not enslaved. One pastor wrote it this way, I can imagine a universe in which a God creates billions of slaves to do his bidding. Minions, lemmings, go here, do this, go there, do that. This is decidedly not the universe that we find ourselves in. That is also not the God that truly exists. You are not enslaved. And so sometimes it feels like we are. I want to do the things I want to do the things I should do, but I can't seem to do that which I want to do. I want to do the workout. 
but I do the very thing I hate. I eat the burger and binge Netflix until I wake up on the couch at 3 a.m. trying to figure out where I am, <laughs> who I am. We feel enslaved often by the bad things. We keep going back to the same unhealthy relationship, the same website, the same pet curse word that pops out of our mouths when we can't control our anger. We want to be kind to our children, but we're not. We want to be confident and hopeful, and yet we are lonely and lash out in despair. Listen, you are free. You are not enslaved. We have two terrible tendencies. One is to feel enslaved to the bad things. I mentioned that already. The second is to feel enslaved to the good things. Do you ever feel that way? Emily prayed for me before I got up to preach, and she said something profound in her prayer, and I wanted to repeat it because it was touching. She said, she said God help John remember that he does not have to perform for anyone else. And in her prayer, it sounded almost as if I do need to perform for God. Like, don't help him to realize he's not performing for these guys. He's kind of, it sounded, the implication was I was performing for God. She thought for a moment, and in the middle of prayer, corrected herself. And I think we both felt just this immense rest. She said, and help him remember that he doesn't have to perform for you either. This is beautiful. You have been set free from performance. Your truest deepest identity is no longer rooted in how good you do as a mom, how good you do at your job, how good a pastor you are, or even how terrible you're doing at your workout plan. As one whose ultimate identity is belonging to God, you've been set free. A quick reminder from last week's sermon, look at John 8:36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You are a free people. Which maybe, as, Amer- as modern Americans, that's really not that surprising to us. Of course we're free, because we're, Am- we're Americans. But that freedom doesn't last forever. America, as neat as it is, we, we don't know how, how long America will last. The freedoms afforded to us by citizenship of this country are not as great as the freedom given to you by God. It will last forever. You are free. And it is, isn't it incre- incredible that The freedom you have in God means that your being loved and your belonging to God are no matter, no more dependent on, no longer dependent on whether you succeed or fail in following Him. In Jesus, there is nothing you could possibly do to make God love you more or less. Isn't that weird? That is just completely unlike any other relationship you have. I know for sure if I go to, go to work on Monday and I'm three hours late, I will probably feel at least loved less. I think most of us would. But in Jesus, there's nothing you could do to make God love you less than he does now. And nothing he could, you could do to make him love you more, which is also free. You are free. A second aspect of your identity from this passage is that you are adopted. So go back to Romans 8:15. It says, "For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received another spirit, and it's the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." In this ancient culture, sons received the full inheritance of the parents when they died. In fact, this chapter goes on to talk about how we, as Christians, receive the fullness of God and His blessings in Jesus as an inheritance. That word sons shouldn't throw you off. 
This is not saying daughters should be excluded. Um, It's a word picture to describe the privilege you are suddenly and graciously bestowed. You are not a slave, you are a son. You are a child. You have been fully adopted. You have been brought in. You are welcomed. You belong. One theologian said that God's adoption of us is the apex of the whole gospel. It's the highest peak of all the stories in history. He said, adoption is greater than the universe and is the reason the universe exists in the first place. To bring you, even though you fail, into a family who will never leave. We all want a home. I was in a car a few days ago driving through Manhattan and I saw a woman from far away. Uh, a sign set out high, outside her tent. She had built a tent on the street uh, and it said, pregnant, homeless, I'm just trying to get home. And just drove by. Thousands of people are walking by and just the image of her laying there under blankets and signs and some old clothes really stuck with me. We long for a home. This is why it's so terrible and painful when a family member or someone we love dies. I thought you were my home. The reason for this, the reason for this longing for for a home and a sense of family is because you were meant to find one. We long for a home and for belonging for a family because you were made for it. So I was in Manhattan again yesterday. It's where I get all my sermon illustrations because everything is going on there. So I was trying to find a place to sit and study. I just wanted, I was, I wanted a place, I'm not asking a lot. I wanted a place with a bathroom, <laughs> good coffee, internet, and a seat. That's it. <laughs> Do you know how hard that is to find? It was driving me insane. I went to one place. Sorry, our bathroom is broken. Next place, we don't have a bathroom at all. Next place, our internet is broken. It's down today. I was so frustrated. How am I ever going to write the rest of the sermon if I can't find a place to sit with some coffee and internet? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I just feel restless sometimes when I'm in Manhattan. I need a place to just like, I just want to go home, you know? And then you get distracted at home and there's all these other things, reasons you can't get to work. But I can't, I can't think... I can't think of anything we need more than a home, a family, and rest, security. There's no better illustration than the trip some of our connectors went on last week. They went to Greece to work with refugees who were fleeing Syria, other war-torn areas. I remember the pictures, and I'm sure you guys remember the names and the faces. I say, I, what did I say? Last year, not last week. We could go back. I mean, yeah, we tried. We long for safety and comfort and a place to rest our head. And there is no more poignant picture of homelessness and orphanage than is going on in the Middle East today. In New York, most of us are trying to keep up with the rent just so we can keep the place that. We can, we can stay in a home that keeps us comforted. But I read a, I read a thing the other day, and it was, it was on my, uh, the Hope for New York page, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, there was a woman who was a refugee kind of just telling her experience uh, of 
being homeless, of being a refugee, of being without a family. Um, it says, My husband and I sold everything we had to afford the journey. We worked 15 hours a day in Turkey until we had enough money to leave. The smuggler put 152 of us on a boat. Once we saw the boat, many of us wanted to go back. But he told us that anyone who turned back would not get a refund. We had no choice. Both the lower compartment and the deck were filled with people. Waves began to come into the boat, so the captain told everyone to throw their baggage into the sea. In the ocean, we hit a rock, but the captains told us not to worry. Water began to come into the boat, but again, he told us not to worry. We were in the lower compartment, and it began to fill with water. It was too tight to move. Everyone began to scream. We were the last ones to get out alive. My husband pulled me out of the window. In the ocean, he took off his life jacket and gave it to a woman. We swam for as long as possible. After several hours, he told me he was too tired to swim and that he was going to float on his back and rest. It was so dark we could not see. The waves were high. I could hear him calling me, but he got further and further away. Eventually, a boat found me, but they never found my husband. I read that, and we're in like a coffee shop. Emily and I are like crying, sitting across from each other at this coffee table, reading this stuff. God says, you are not a slave to me. I will take you in. Come to me, all you who are are burdened and heavy laden. I will take you in. This is the ultimate Statue of Liberty sign. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. That's what Jesus says to us. Yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You are welcomed in. You are adopted. Another author said, When hearing the word adoption, most envision a once-orphaned child, now legally joined to a new set of parents, A previously forlorn soul flees a loveless past and enters the permanent embrace of a welcoming family. For the child, life changes dramatically, with changes only slightly less marked for the parents and the siblings. With legal status now wholly changed, the child takes on a new name, a new identity, and a new address, along with a new set of formal and formative relationships. The legal change affects relational changes, Adoption intercepts the probable destiny of heartache and exchanges almost certain tragedy for rewarding care and provision. Virtually nothing remains the same for the adopter and the adoptee. This is you. This is me. You're free. Isn't that incredible? You're free. You are adopted. You have been brought in. And the third aspect of your identity is that you are heard. Romans 8.15, to finish the verse off, says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but if you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice the difference between slaves and sons. Slavery leads to fear, which makes sense. But adoption leads to what? The verse says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you did receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. So slaves fear. Sons, they do not fear. They cry out. 
This is what it means to be a child of God, to be adopted by him, to, to be brought in and to belong to him. It means to cry out to him. And the amazing thing about your identity is you are heard when you cry out. Abba, the word used in this passage, means something like daddy. It's an affectionate term. And for the people hearing this at this time, people who are not used to a personal relationship between a person and God, to call God daddy is really weird. There's a little girl who comes to our Connect the Tots playgroup. Her dad, Ramon, is an incredible musician, and he was talking to me the other day. He was talking about music, and he's getting really into it, as musicians do. And he's like, looking me right in the face, and he's just like, and we were doing this, and he's, the pianos were here, and he's just, he was talking about it, and he was really just focused, looking me right in the eyes for like 30 minutes. We talked, and it was just, he was so passionate. And something, I didn't even, I, I barely heard it, but he heard it. It must have been like a bell. He heard the word, Papa. And he, his eyes just shot from mine to his daughter who was across the room. His, his eyes and attention and focus immediately shifted. That's the kind of relationship with we, we have with God. Which is scandalous and weird and crazy, but true. There's another verse. Not only does God the Father hear you, Romans 8.26 will also come onto the screen. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, with, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Father hears us. The Spirit, who's with the Father, hears us and speaks to the Father on our behalf. Go to that next verse. And then this one, Romans 8.34, a little later in the passage, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So you have in this one chapter a picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which we can talk about later, the complexities and nuances of that, but they're all together for you. You have the fullness of God hearing you. Isn't that weird? That's so crazy, right? We believe in one God, eternally revealed in three persons, and we're heard by all three. You are heard by the Father, God. You are heard by God the Son, and He prays to His Father for you. You are heard by God the Spirit, and He prays to the Father for you. The entire fullness of God is listening to you and working on your behalf, and that's your identity. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of, the, one of my favorite quotes of all time, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Another quote. A stranger will hesitate to approach a king, but the king's child will climb on his knee and whisper in his ear. You are free. You are adopted. You are heard. That's so much better than whatever you were putting on the list on the other side. If 
I, I really, I challenge you to do this this week. To create a list of how you typically view yourself and then create a list of how God views you. And please don't forget those three things. Put them on the list. Those are the truest things about you. You belong. We're like, I don't know, I don't, maybe you don't feel this. I feel this. We're fighting so often to create something of ourselves, to make something of ourselves. Now you just don't have to do that. You don't have to do it in your relationships. You don't have to do it in the workforce. Your identity is deeper and truer than that. You are free, you are adopted, you are heard. Your identity is secure in belonging to God, and you can trust Him. You can trust Him because the reason you have all these things is because God sacrificed His Son for us. The cool conclusion, I guess, to all that is we, have, we are free because Jesus had freedom. He had complete freedom and sacrificed himself into the chains of the Roman guard so that you, a slave, could be made free. Now you're free. Jesus, God's Son, sacrificed the privilege and fullness of God's presence so that you, an outcast, could be brought in. Now you're adopted. Jesus, had God's ear ever inclined to him, and yet he came here and cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? On your behalf, on my behalf, so that you and I would not be forsaken but heard. Because Jesus sacrificed the privilege of sonship on the cross, you now belong to God. That is your identity. And because you are free, adopted, and heard, you can trust him with your life, and you can cry out. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a time of response. Father, thank you for a clearer picture of our identity. Everybody in here has a, has a thought as to how good or bad they're doing at following you. Some of us think we're doing great. Some of us think we're doing terribly. Uh, the truth is, none of us are doing as great as we could be. Uh, and so I pray that we would not be a church that everybody seems perfect and you come in and no one's struggling. God, I pray that we would be a church where people can be open and honest about the ways that they fail. God, we are not good enough to merit your grace, and we are so thankful we have it. God, I pray that the people who are gathered in here, myself included, this week would have a better sense of their true identity. They are no longer defined by how good or bad they do before you. God, we are free people. We are adopted people, and we are heard by you. I pray this week that that would be a powerful and transformative force in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.